We are here on the third week of this uh, series called Winning the Worry War. So if you have an outline, you can take that out. Uh, You see it's a pointless message today, but um, I know you'll come up with some points in the midst of it. Uh, Third message in this series, uh, a little short series, next week will be the last week, uh, where we've been studying out of Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has been saying such things as, do not worry, because you have a father in heaven who is uh, watching out for you, he's taking care of you. And he says, uh, don't be a person of little faith. Last week we, we said, little faithers, don't be a little faither, but rather seek your heavenly Father's plans for your life, and everything then will fall into the place it needs to be. Uh, and what we've come to realize, I hope, is that we worry because we can't control the future. And what Jesus is saying here is, yes, but you know the one who does control the future, and he is looking out for you. He has your best interest in mind. Now, when I, when I say don't worry, I, I don't mean, and Jesus does not mean, don't be, you know, like responsible. Uh, don't, don't not care. He, he's saying, no, be those things, do those things, but when you are, don't worry about things as you go along. And that thought, I think, is encapsulated in the prayer that Reinhold Niebuhr, some of you might recognize that name, Reinhold Niebuhr, he's an American theologian, born in the late 1800s, passed away in 1971. Uh, The prayer that he made famous, that Alcoholics Anonymous popularized, I think it's right up here. Uh, Let me read it to you. You'll, I think, be familiar with it when I read it. It says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Any of you ever heard that saying? Or that? Okay, that, that's a prayer that a Christian man came up with in, in Alcoholics Anonymous or based upon Christian principles, biblical principles. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that, that kind of encapsulates a little bit of what he understood Jesus to be saying in the midst of the series that we're talking about here. And you know, it's, it's been fun to hear kind of some testimonies of people who've been making some changes in their life. Um, one person has said that they have cut out all the news sources that were coming in and giving them a lot of, uh, you know, things to worry about and things to think about. Someone else said that they cut out their Facebook accounts because they got too stressed and worried about all the things that were going on and all the fun that other people were having that really they probably weren't, but they just made it look good on Facebook like they were having fun, right? In fact, I had testimony from a gal who said, um, you know, I, I, I made some changes um, in my life that I, I think have really helped me, and she's done this over the last few months. And so I said, would you put this down on, on paper? And I'd like to read this. Uh, she writes down, this is a confession of a worryaholic. She says, I used to worry about everything all the time, from the moment I woke up till the second I fell asleep. It was my secret burden. I never shared it with anyone. My life, though, was changed when I started to see that it was a spiritual problem that I was having. I thought to myself, I'm going to give up worrying. What she decided to do was give it up for Lent, of all things. She said, this would just be between me and God. She said, I will stick to this and accomplish it. She said, the year before she gave up soda, this was so much more important. I'll give up worry." It was even more dominant in my life than I thought, she said. I was exhausted. The worry crept up constantly. It was overwhelming in my life. I was really stealing so much time that it became maddening. 
This made me even more determined to see this through to completion. And slowly my desperate prayers became peaceful talks with God. She said, what did I do to do this? She said, whenever a worry came to thought, which was every five or ten minutes, she said, I would pray immediately. I'm not worrying. God, it's Lent. This one is yours. I'm giving this to you. And God would release me of that instantly. As difficult as it was, she says, I pulled it off. Now, I've never been so relieved, not because Lent was over, but because I gave up worrying. She says, I don't worry about anything now. Never. I trust God is in control from the moment I wake to the end of the day, all during the night. I sleep peaceful knowing God is in control. God is in control. And you know, I don't realize, uh, or I don't know if you realize that so much of even our everyday lives are affected by kind of how we view situations. I told you at the beginning of the series that if you follow the teachings of Jesus, particularly in this one set of verses that we have here, if you follow this, this will radically change your life. It'll change the way you do things in this upcoming year if you keep it up for the rest of your life. I came across an article this last week from um, Relevant Magazine, uh, an article by Rob Mole, who's an uh, award-winning journalist, communications officer to the president of World Vision. And he talked about how our spiritual lives are so in tune even with our physical lives. Look at some of the things he said. He said, spiritual practices can reduce blood pressure, strengthen the immune system, help stave off the effects of mental illness about as well as any drugs on the market. He said, in fact, the lack of religiosity is about as unhealthy as 40 years of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. You hear that? He's saying if you don't have God in your life, if you don't go to church, if you're not around people who are positive and uplifting, if you don't put into practice the things that God says and Jesus teaches us, it's like smoking a pack a day for 40 years is what it does on our, on our bodies. If you care about your health, you might want to start going to church and praying and giving up your concerns to God regularly. And then he goes through and kind of labels some different areas that, that are increased or, or reduced health concerns. He says, studies have shown that religion can reduce stress in a number of ways. Prayer in particular can reduce high blood pressure. That is due to stress. The anxieties and stresses of modern life tend to encourage the body's fight or flight response. Prayer, worship, and other spiritual activities can balance out this stress response by enhancing the body's relaxation response. He says, in one study, and this is out of Duke University, he says, the study found that church membership was the only thing of social involvement that predicated greater life satisfaction and happiness. Did not Mike, Pastor Mike just talk about church membership here just a bit ago? Some of you probably could go through that. Now, not just to get healthy, but honestly, I think it is to be healthy, spiritually healthy, not realizing that it could also increase your physical health. In fact, it goes on to say that the people in your life, what we would even call community groups, the people who care for you and you care for them in the midst of study, are, vital, are a vital web that sustains our health through rich relationships that improve both uh, psychological and emotional well-being. 
Now, he, he says, you know what, don't do this religious stuff just to take a pill or the Bible's not an exercise program or something like that. But he says, if we believe that God's authority stretches to the physical as well as the spiritual, then we can accept that he can manifest the authority in our physical health as well as our spiritual health. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, you have a Father in heaven who loves you very much. So don't get all worked up. Don't get all stressed out about things that happen today or tomorrow. Follow in his plan, as we talked about last week. Following in his kingdom. Following his righteousness. And then things in your life are going to come together. So much more peacefully. Now, it's not a magic pill. It does not happen overnight. But when we follow him, things are so much more apt to fall together. And so I want to continue kind of that thought as we look in a little different area today, uh, an Old Testament character who is in Scripture that I think summarizes really well what we've been going over the last couple of weeks. And so if you have your Bibles, if you would open them up to 1 Kings chapter 19. It's about 10, 11 uh, books into the Bible. And um, as you're finding that, let me just kind of set the stage here. First Kings is a story about a lot of, uh, can you guess what? A lot of what? A lot of kings, yep. Some are good, some are bad. In fact, there's so many kings in here that it went into not only a first kings, but a second kings as well. So if you hit second kings, go back a little bit, you'll hit first kings. And it's a story about a guy who has a lot of worry. Um, and towards the end of the story that we're going to read here, God asked him a phenomenal question. In fact, it is a revolutionary question that will revolutionize your life and your thinking and your believing if you would ask it of yourself. In fact, if you are a worrier, this is a question that you need to have on the forefront of your mind. Take it, put it on a post-it note, put it up on a mirror, on your dashboard, put it on a 3 by 5 card, put it somewhere where you will come across it often. This question just nails it to keep us focused on the things that really matter. It is a life-changing question. Now, let me set the stage, though, before I ask you the question, all right? A little Old Testament history. When uh, the nation of Israel became a kingdom, the first, Saul, the first uh, king was a man by the name of King Saul. And then he passed the kingship down to King David, and then to his son, who was Solomon, which, by the way, if you recognize that name Solomon, Jesus referenced Solomon in the teaching that we were taught, uh, studied about last week. And so it's kind of interesting how Matthew 6 kind of ties in with the name of Solomon. Solomon then became the king over the land, and after Solomon, there was a split in the kingdom. So much so that they began to call themselves a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And they called the northern kingdom the northern kingdom because it was in the north. And they called the southern kingdom the southern kingdom because it was in the... Good, you guys are Bible scholars. Good call. Way to go. The northern kingdom was referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom was referred to as Judah. And this story takes place about 860 years before Jesus came onto the scene, before Jesus was born into this world, after the kingdoms had already split. And the king of the northern kingdom was a man by the name of King Ahab. King Ahab. Which, by the way, does anybody recognize that name Ahab from anything? From what? What? Moby Dick, yeah, Moby Dick, which I'm not sure how it ties in other than he had a kind of a first mate by the name of Starbucks, right? Star, or Starbuck, was it Starbuck, right? 
which I'm, again, not sure how that ties in other than our cafe sells much better coffee than Starbucks. And um, so they're worried about us over here at First Baptist because they're going to lose profit, which brings us to a place of talking about worry. All right? So that's, that's where that's going if you want it to go there. I don't know. Um, that, that was for free, okay? That was, that, was, that was for free. Ahab is a wicked king. And he's the leader of God's people. But he has turned his heart away from God. And he is into idol worship. He is into Baal. He, he is just screwing up royally. And so God, in his infinite grace, sends someone to try and put him back on the right track. Which is, which is so like God. I mean, he does that probably with you and me. At some point in some time, you might be able to remember back, maybe in your teenage years, your, your young adult years as this band, uh, uh, many of them were in their young adult years of remembering maybe someone, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a grandparent who kind of steered you back into the things of God. Maybe as you got a little bit older in life and you weren't doing the right things, maybe a friend came alongside you and said, is that something that you really want to be doing? Let me show you a better way. Let me show you a better, some better things that you can be doing in your life. Or maybe even right here today. Someone came at our 8 o'clock service who I had not seen around here. He said, for 11 years, I saw him at a restaurant on Friday night. I said, you need to come back. He said, I will. He came, he brought his mom and his grandma with him. Perhaps I was that person in his life just to say, come on back. See what's here. See what God's plan for your life is. So God sends along the prophet Elijah. And Elijah tells King Ahab, you're screwing up. You are not doing it right. And to get your attention, God is going to cause uh, rain not to fall on your land for quite a while. In fact, what he's going to do is he's going to ruin the economy of the land here of Israel. And just like when the economy goes bad and politicians start, you know, pointing fingers at each other like, no, it was you, no, it was the Republicans, no, it was the Democrats, no, it was the President, no, it was Congress, no, it was the House of Representatives. They start pointing fingers at one another. God says, uh, Elijah, uh, they're going to start pointing fingers and they're all going to be at you because you're the one who brought the message to them. But, but Elijah, I will take care of you. And Elijah is going to run and he's going to hide. and He's not going to become very popular because he's going to fear for his life. But God's going to care for Elijah by bringing, of all things, get this, the birds are going to bring to him bread and they're going to bring to him meat. Now, isn't that interesting how we just started Matthew chapter 6? God's saying, I care for you more than the birds. Sometimes he even takes the birds. He uses the birds to take care of us. God knows what we are going through. God, God, God intimately is involved with our lives. And so after God has King Ahab's attention, he tells Elijah, go back to King Ahab and tell him it uh, is going to rain again now that I have your attention. But let me tell you the story that gets his attention. It is an epic, epic showdown. One of the most fascinating stories in all of the Bible. One of my favorites in the Old Testament. And again, it's found in Matthew, or excuse me, in 1 Kings chapter 18. And it bleeds into chapter 19. And it's the battle on Mount Carmel. And Elijah says, uh, King Ahab... You go ahead and pray to Baal, who is your God. I'll pray to Yahweh, who I know is the one true God. And then we'll see who brings rain. 
First, we're going to see who brings some fire, and then we know that he can also bring rain. And this is such a classic scene. In fact, I love this because, you know, the, the spiritual world is often kind of nebulous. It's often a little bit subjective. You know, okay, where's God leading here, and what's he saying over here? I'm not quite sure. I think he's coming over here. But, but this is just like cut and dry to the point. There is a winner. There is a loser. It is a huge battle. And Elijah steps up and said, let's get ready to rumble because it is coming. It is coming. And so these 450 prophets of Baal, they show up. And these 400 prophets of Asher show up. And thousands of people from the nearby towns come out. I mean, it is a clash of clans battle that's going to happen on this ground. And we are ready for this. Elijah stepped up and said, okay, people, you need to choose. You have two options. Uh, fish or cut bait on what it's going to be. If it's Yahweh, follow Yahweh. If it is Baal, follow Baal. Kind of like God does with us sometimes waiting very patiently for us. God says, who are you going to follow? I'm not going to force you to follow me. It'll be your choice. It'll be your decision. It'll be your worship. It'll be your actions. But choose. Which way are you going here? Who are you going to follow? And so look at 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. It says, Elijah came near to all the people and said... How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, I think it's interesting that God did not say, worship him. He said, find out who your God is and follow him. Kind of like when we went through our series a couple falls ago, not a fan. We said, are you a fan or are you a follower? Because followers follow. This is, this is the DTR. This is the define the relationship. Figure out what you're on for. What are you going to do? So Elijah brings out a couple of bulls. He says, you go ahead. You choose which one's the best that you want to have. You build an altar. You cut the bull up. You call on your God. See if your God sends down fire. Then I will call upon the one true God, and I know he will. And check what happens in uh, 1 Kings 18.24. This is after Elijah had his let's get ready to rumble speech. Okay, In verse 24, says, and you call upon the name of your God, I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Yes. And I have a feeling some of them in the back were putting down $1,000 on Baal, and others were saying, check the Vegas odds on this. I bet you, I bet you Baal's winning in the odds, so let's go. Let's even this up. And, and, and it was just one of these events that they were wanting to see. The spectacle is here. What's going to happen? This could get interesting. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal. From morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made. Now, this is kind of an interesting word. 
because in the ESV it says they limped around the altar. Some of you still have the NIV, and it says they danced around the altar, which is kind of funny because if you can't tell if someone's dancing or limping, that is a pathetic dance, I would say, right? Whatever the case, they're doing something. The rain man or the sprinkler or whatever, they're going around and around in the Roger Rabbit or whatever it may be, going around this, and no, I'm not going to do it for you right now, but it was a, I, I, I would be one of those limpers, to be honest with you. I, I'm not much of a dancer. They were going round and round and trying to get the God's attention. Verse 26, but there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, this was after breakfast, after lunch, nothing had happened. Elijah mocked them. Very interesting word there. He mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is God. I mean, Elijah does a little something that, that is, is, is a little less than you know, politically correct here. He, he starts to make fun of their God, Right? I mean, I, I don't necessarily advise this because of the day and age that we are in, right? I mean, I, mean, I don't like it. I kind of take offense when somebody takes the, the, um, you know, the Jesus little symbol that's on a car and puts, you know, feet underneath it as though to say, you know, it's kind of uh, implies Darwinism or, or offensive. And so every time I, I see those cars, I, I just walk by and key it and then I'm done with it. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. No, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. All right. Elijah may have done that, right? He may have done that because it was not a good thing. But it says in Scripture that he taunted them. He mocked them. That's the word the Bible uses, the ESV. He mocked them. And again, it says, At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a, a, a god, kind of, isn't he? Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Or, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. I mean, you know, can you get the picture here? You know that, that, that statue, that, that what they call the thinking man, something like that? He's like, you think God's just kind of sitting there musing over things? Or do you think, do you think maybe, literally, relieving himself, he's in the bathroom. He's taking a potty break. Is that what your God does? You, you get Elijah's fever here? I mean, you get what he's saying? He's like, is that really your God? I mean, maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's on vacation. He, he's not here. Is he asleep? The sarcasm is thick, so thick that the people are kind of ticked off at this now, and they begin to cut themselves, and they begin to have blood flow down to try and get the attention of their God. Then Elijah does something really arrogant, um, if that wasn't good enough. And after Baal doesn't appear, he builds another altar that he's building now to Yahweh, the one true God. And to put a little salt in the wound, he says, um, let's soak this altar with uh, water. Now, we might miss this detail here, but so he's got some wood, he's got some other things. That had to be very dry because drought was in the land. We know we've experienced some drought in the land, so that wood will burn quickly. So he says, pour water on it, do it not only once, do it not only twice, do it three separate times. And they poured so much water on this altar that there was also a trench around it that filled up with, altar, filled up with water as well. 
And then Elijah prays. And fire comes screaming down from heaven. And it uh, burns up the sacrifice. It burns up the wood. It burns up the rocks. It burns up the stones. It builds up the soil. And the scripture says it licked up all the water around the altars. Gone. And the people said, whoa, that's God. We will follow him. And they take the prophets, and they kill them, murder them, do away with them. And Elijah says, okay, now, King Ahab, got your attention. Now God can send some rain. Now, as good as that story is, that's not the one I wanted to tell you today. All right? All right? That's a good story. But the thing about that story is there's no problems for the good guys. Right? There, there's nothing to worry about in that story. That's a great story. It's a champion story. We, we, we love that story. The story I want to tell you about is the one that happens right after that. But I wanted to set it up with that first one because the second one will become so much more real because of what we just saw, the background of the story. Here's the story I want to share with you. Ahab goes home and shares what had happened with his wife. Now, by the way, does anybody know who his wife is? Jezebel is his wife. If you haven't, don't know her, she is like the wicked witch of the East, okay? That is Jezebel. So much so, and she is so evil in the Old Testament that really to today, I would doubt that there's anybody who was named after Jezebel. Does anybody have Jezebel as their first name or their middle name? Okay? I mean, we don't even name our dogs Jezebel, right? Because of that. I mean, that would be a little bit like if you named your daughter Jezebel, naming your son Judas, Okay? That, that's kind of what it would be. Could you imagine like going to a playground and meeting a parent like, oh yeah, this is my daughter Jezebel, my son Judas, right? I'm like, you're not playing with my kids. No way. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Nuh-uh. She's evil. So evil. Let me, let me show you what she does. 1 Kings 19, 1 and 2. Here's the true story. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, Jezebel's saying, You are toast, Elijah. You are going to die like all the prophets died. You, you, you are a dead man walking. Now, if there was ever a time when I would say Elijah should be able to say, I'm not worried about that. If there was ever a time when Elijah should be able to strut his stuff around and, and, and really now be arrogant and be, you know, cocky as a peacock kind of person, it would be now, right? I mean, Elijah should be like, oh, come on, come on, right? 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 Let's go. Let's go. What's that karate kid stuff? Like, right? Right? Come on. Bring it. Bring it on. No such thing. No such thing at all. In fact, it's interesting what he does. Because from our perspective, we can be like, Elijah, what do you got to worry about? Didn't you just see what happened? Watch what happens. Verse 3. Then... Hearing what Jezebel just said, then he was, what's the word there? Afraid. He was afraid. 
and he arose and he ran for his life. Man, did he just forget what God did for him? I mean, what does he have to be worried about in this situation? Which, by the way, let, let's let him off the hook just a little bit, because I would imagine if I could read your mind and you told me some of your most intimate worries, that I would probably be doing the same thing, being like, what do you got to worry about? And I would imagine if you could read my mind and I would tell you some of my most intimate worries, that you would probably say, uh uh-huh, Pastor Brad, that, that's, pfft, you don't have anything to worry about. And so Elijah is kind of a real guy here, right? He, he, he's worried about some of the little things. He, he forgets about God. He, he forgets what God had just done for him. And so verse 3 again, let me kind of pick it up there where it says, he was afraid, he arose, he ran for his life, and he ran actually from the northern kingdom, Beersheba, to Judah, the southern kingdom, and he left his servant there. And verse 4 says, he himself went a day's journey further into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might, what? Just let me die now. Saying, is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Did, not, did, did God not take care of him? Right? He's taking care of him right there practically. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time. And touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. In other words, I mean, you are so stressed out, you're not even eating. You need to eat. Don't get so worried and stressed out. Verse 8, And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. We'll hold on to that uh, word just a second there says in verse 9 that he came to a cave and he lodged in it. Now, the reason I want to talk about Horeb is because this is a pretty significant little piece in this. I think Elijah ran off to this mountain, which was called Mount Sinai. We would know it as Mount Sinai today. It was by, known by either name there to the Israelites. It's the place, if you remember Mount Sinai, where Moses met God at the burning bush in the place where the Ten Commandments were given. So there's this little thought here that maybe Elijah ran to this mountain because he thought that that's where God was dwelling and he just wants to be in God's presence, leave the whole world behind, leave all the worries behind. I just want to go up and I just want to go up on that mountain and die because my tomorrow seems so uncertain. Verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here? Now, there's the question that we talked about at the very beginning. If you're wondering, okay, what was that life-changing, revolutionary question? What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, here, Elijah? What are you doing here? You are miles away from where you should be. 
This is not where you should be, Elijah. You should be back up in the northern kingdom. You should be back there where you just performed a, a tremendous battle and gave me victory. What are you doing now down here? Now, the reason I love this question is because I think it works so well for us in 2015. Because um, I have a feeling that a lot of us in here today have run from a lot of worries in our own lives. Maybe you have run from a marriage that you've been in. Figured it, it's no good. Too much problems, and so I'm running away. Maybe physically you have run away from a relationship or with your family because of stresses that you've had in your life. Maybe even emotionally you have run from some relationships that you knew you should be in and be putting time and energy into. Perhaps, perhaps maybe even you were seeking some outlets and distancing yourself from some worries in your life. Maybe on a nightly basis you'd have a beer, and now that's turned into a couple of beers. Or you'd have a glass of wine just to take the edge off, and now that's turned into two or three glasses of wine. Maybe you've kind of become a recluse and, and, and put yourself into some chat rooms, uh, or you become emotional emotionally involved with someone or had an emotional affair, and you just tried to kind of let the world just kind of go away, and so you've kind of narrowed your world down, and you're in a place that you've never been before, be it physically, be it emotionally, be it relationally, and it's a place that you have no business being in. And now God shows up, and God says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Why would you run? Why did you allow the uncertainties of tomorrow? And by the way, tomorrow will always have uncertainties in life. Why did you allow those to cause you to run? Why are you allowing the threat of uncertainty, the threat of not knowing what your employer is going to do or the threat of the economy or the threat of of finances or the threat of what could happen to take you to a place that you have no business being, what are you doing here? Which, by the way, it's awfully easy for us to kind of eavesdrop into Elijah's life and to see that because many times we can see better than someone else who's running. Right? It's why here at First Baptist we constantly encourage you to get involved in a community group or into a growth group so that you can have people around you so that they can be there to give you counsel and guidance and to pray for you, sometimes speaking up God's Word, sometimes just praying for you so that you will understand and come to that conclusion on your own. Because what happens here is Elijah begins to reason, I think, with God. Look at verse 10. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life now to take it away. In other words, God, why are you asking me what am I doing here? You expect me to stay in that land when they have a bounty on my head? The northern kingdom is not real safe right now. And then God refocuses Elijah's thoughts. He refocuses his priorities. And look at verse 11, the first part of it. He said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And Elijah's probably thinking, what good is that going to do? And so 
he doesn't actually get all the way out from this cave that he's lodging up in. He gets out just far enough to kind of see what's taking place. And verse 11, the second part of it says this, And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains. And by the way, he is just flexing his muscles here on this one. He's just kind of cracking his knuckles, getting ready to go on this. It says, And it broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. And by the way, he is just kind of showing off in the midst of this kind of earthquake. He's just kind of rocking things up. And it says, But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake of fire, and he is just kind of stretching it out, just sending, can you just imagine what this would have felt like to see God's power in the midst of this? It says, and the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, then, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. Now he came out from the cave, and he said, um, and behold, there was a voice that said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, Elijah, it's me. It's God. I am here. Remember the fireworks display on on Mount Carmel? Remember what took place there? Did you not see my power? Did you not see now my power in the wind, in the earthquake, in the fire? It is me. In fact, he's saying, Elijah, don't forget to factor me into your equations. Any worry, any concern you have, make sure you put me in the midst of that. And you know what that does? Watch this. What that does is, for those of you who remember math, elementary school math, when someone would give you a problem and they would say, what's 9 times 7 times 6 times 3 times 100 times 17 times 0 times 17 times 23 times 9? What's your answer? Zero. Oh, some of you got it, right? Zero. Any equation, multiplication that has the answer zero in it or has the problem zero, the number zero in it, is always going to be what? Zero, always. And I know, you know, as a little kid, we were kind of thinking this out, 79, 90, 73, 72, and all of a sudden, zero, it is done. It's zero. I think that's where God's coming on this one. He's saying, don't forget to put me in that equation because whatever worry you have, stress, life, work, finances, health, family, God, oh, God cancels it all out. God is in the midst of it. And then Elijah answers God. Maybe not so arrogantly this time, because he says the same thing he said in 10. But in verse 14, he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So God says, all right, then let me show you the plan. And in verse 15, he says, I'm going to anoint a new king over Israel, and I'm going to have a new king over Aram, and you're going to have a new prophet that's even going to replace you. And then Elijah probably sat down and began to look at how much he had limited God. And can't you just hear God saying, or Elijah saying to God, you mean, God, you got that plan already set in place? 
for me? God said, yeah. You mean you've already got a purpose in mind throughout all this? Yep. You mean you, you, you are going to bring this all together? You mean I did not need to be worried? Nope. God, I kind of left you out, didn't I? Yep. God says, Elisha, what, what are you doing here? What are you, what are you doing in this place? And so the message I want to give to you is we've kind of taken a narrative through an Old Testament passage that really reiterates what Jesus says in the New Testament is if worry has brought you to a place where you are making stupid decisions and if you are considering decisions that you never thought you would be making, if you're running to places that you never thought you would run, then you are leaving God out of the equation. And most of us in this room have way too much good history with God to let that happen. You have way too many stories to tell of times when God blessed you. You have way too many stories to tell of how God took you through this situation and this situation and this situation and this situation, and now you are here, but you're not sure about that situation, that situation, that situation. You just have to look back and see how God brought you through all those to realize how much he's going to take care of you through all the rest that you're going through. You have too much good history just to write that off and throw that away. And you need to remind yourself, God, you are in control. You still have a plan. You still have a purpose. And you need to go back. Because how'd you get here? How'd you get in a place where you're worried about stuff? How'd you get into a place where you walked away from God, where God wanted you to be? And isn't, isn't it amazing how today's worries can erase God's past faithfulness? How we let that happen. See, the point of this whole series that Jesus taught and now Elijah is, is learning is we need to do what we can do today in order to trust God tomorrow. And don't let tomorrow's worries drive you to places you don't belong. And so before you get there or as you are on your way there, ask yourself that question, how did I get here? Because God is in your tomorrow. In fact, would you say that with me? God is in my tomorrow. Say that. God is in my tomorrow. Say it one more time. God is in my tomorrow. And you can say that to yourself this week, or you can sit and worry. Whichever one you'd like. Choice is yours. God isn't going to force you on that. You get to decide. My prayer is that tonight when your head hits the pillow, without any worries, you say, God, I have done what I can do today. I will rest in your presence tonight, and I will see you tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for how real you are to us. Thank you for how good you are to us. Lord, forgive us for the times when um, we forget how good you are. Forgive us for the times when we don't pay enough attention to you. And when we don't follow your plan. And Lord, even when we run and chase after our own ways and we don't seek first the kingdom of God, 
to realize that you are still God, you are still on the throne, and you are still waiting with arms open wide to do it your way. Yeah, we're so sorry. We're, we're repentful. We're repentant of times when we make it more confusing than it needs to be. And really the ones that we're hurting are ourselves. And we're hurting our witness for others because, God, you have blessed us to be a blessing to others. And while we do it your way and follow your righteousness, there is a blessing that comes onto our lives, and it is a blessing that gets shared and told and communicated with others. And, Lord, there's an intimacy that happens when we don't walk our own way, but when we walk yours. So, Lord, if we're in places that we should not be, may we continue to ask that question that your Spirit is asking us. What are you doing here? And, Lord, may we turn and follow you. God, on this day, we declare we follow the one true God. We follow you. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.